This is not your century. This is Not Your Century, where we celebrate the news and the news media of centuries gone by. I'm King Kaufman. In the San Francisco Hall of Justice, high drama is in the making as police officials brief the press in one of the best-kept secrets in modern journalism. Forget modern journalism. This is one of the best-kept secrets in modern San Francisco. For 64 hours, from January 16th to 19th, 1954, the city bustled through its day as though nothing was happening. What was happening was a kidnapping and a massive manhunt. Everyone who knew about it, including all the journalists in the city and a bunch throughout California, agreed to keep quiet. It all started when a guy named Leonard Moskowitz agreed to drive out to Seacliff to show a house to a man named Mr. Lund. Lenny was a 36-year-old real estate broker, and Mr. Lund said his wife had to borrow the car that Saturday, so he asked Lenny to pick him up outside City Hall. Mr. Lund was well-dressed. He had a Scandinavian accent. He said, let's take a quick trip to Glen Park. I want you to meet my brother-in-law. He's going to help finance the deal. So Lenny drove him to a house on Arbor Street. That's one of those narrow little streets on the hillside between the park and what's now the BART station. When they got there, another man opened the door. Mr. Lund gave him a cheery hello, and then he pushed Lenny into the house and tackled him. He pulled out a knife, and he said, One peep from you, and it's the end. Lenny was starting to think this wasn't a real estate deal. Actually, he was terrified, and he thought he was a dead man. His three-day ordeal had begun. Mr. Lund said, we're not going to hurt you. All we want is some money. And you and your old man are the guys that have it. Lenny's old man was Maurice Moskowitz, a successful businessman and a player in city politics. The plan was a ransom, $500,000. That's about $4.7 million in today's money. The two men dictated a ransom note for Lenny to write. It begged his family to pay up and warned that the men would kill him or mutilate him if they didn't get their money, or if any word leaked out about the kidnapping. The crooks said the family should put a classified ad in the examiner agreeing to the terms. That letter arrived at Lenny's dad's house on Lake Street around 5 o'clock Saturday afternoon. Maurice Moskowitz had already called the cops. His son was obsessively punctual, and he'd missed a 2.30 appointment. Because of the threat in the letter, and because they didn't want the kidnappers to know they were on their trail, the cops asked the media not to report the kidnapping. And the media agreed. The Chronicle had prepared an extra edition of the paper covering the spectacular crime, and the editors, once they were sure that everybody else was keeping quiet too, they literally held the presses. The classified ad appeared in the Sunday Examiner, as demanded in the ransom note, Only instead of agreeing to the half-million-dollar ransom, it asked to negotiate. The crooks were furious, but they answered back that their boss, who didn't exist, had agreed to $300,000. Lenny was kept bound and gagged in a bedroom. The kidnappers did feed him, and they let him bathe and smoke. The tense negotiations went back and forth Sunday and Monday, in more ransom notes, in the examiner classified and by phone calls with Lenny's twin brother, Alfred, who was known as Ollie. He lived in Burlingame. Lenny's dad called on friends and family and gathered the $300,000 ransom. 
The cops told Ollie to stall when the kidnappers called, and they used the technology of the day. The phone company pasted Ollie's number on the switchboard of every single phone operator in the city, and they told him, watch out for calls to this line. An alert operator spotted a long call around midnight Monday, the third night of the ordeal. They traced it to a phone booth near Sloat and West Portal. Then about 2.45 that same morning, one of the kidnappers went back to the phone booth to make another call, and the cops nabbed him. They bundled him into the car and told him it'd be a lot better if he came clean so they could get to Lenny before the kidnapping case became a murder rap. It actually might not have gotten better, because in the wake of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping and murder in the 30s, kidnappers were on the hook for the death penalty. But the guy agreed. His name was Joseph Lear. He was 43. His partner was the mastermind, 57-year-old Harold Jackson. They were from Sacramento. Jackson had once run a waterfront security company in San Francisco, and Lear had worked for him. They were both unlicensed private eyes in the city at one point. Lear told the cops that Jackson really would kill Lenny if he knew they were coming. So the officers all took off their shoes for the raid. Lear kept his shoes on, and Jackson heard his footsteps. So he opened the door, and the police burst in. It was all over. Twenty years later, when Patty Hearst was arrested, you remember that episode of Not Your Century from September? The local FBI chief bragged that it was unheard of for law enforcement to grab a kidnapping victim. Putting aside whether that was the right way to describe Patty Hearst at that point, Herb Kane said, not so fast, and he told the story of the Moskowitz kidnapping. The press were finally ungagged as Lenny had a tearful reunion with his family at the Hall of Justice. He kept apologizing to his wife because he looked so bad. He hadn't shaved in three days. She thought he looked like a million bucks. The crooks did get the death penalty under the so-called Little Lindbergh Law. Both sentences were later reduced to life in prison. Jackson committed suicide one day after being denied parole in 1965. He stabbed himself in front of a group of visitors to the prison. It's unclear to me what happened to Lear. Various news reports over the years have said that he was paroled in 1968 or in 1970 or that he died in prison. Lenny Moskowitz went on to become a successful insurance executive on the peninsula, and he always made a habit of defending the news media. He said if it wasn't for them staying silent, he wouldn't have made it out alive in 1954. He died in 2008 at the age of 90. This has been Not Your Century, a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief. Get great journalism today at sfchronicle.com. I'm King Kaufman. Talk to me on Twitter at King underscore Kaufman. We now return you to yours.